Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. So previously on the show, we mostly touched on finance and econ-related uh, policy matters, and we interviewed uh, Dr. Celeste Wallander, who was the former U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense on Russia and Eurasia. Uh, we talked about Russia, but today we're actually going to pivot uh, back to another vital area of American interest, uh, the Middle East. And we'll talk a bit about American foreign policy. Uh, joining me in the studio today is one of the most respected career ambassadors within the United States Foreign Service and a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Ambassador Ryan Crocker. He served as U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan under President Obama, to Iraq under President George W. Bush, and before that to Pakistan, Syria, Kuwait, and Lebanon. It's such a great honor to have you on our show. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ambassador Crocker. Thanks for having me, Tiger. Uh, I want to start with the country where you most recently served in as Ambassador uh, Afghanistan uh, from 2011 to 2012. Uh, would you mind first giving us a quick overview of the, the work you did over there and the, maybe the current state of the country? My experience in, in Afghanistan was in several phases. I, uh, I was ambassador uh, as you know, 2011-2012, but I was also there at the beginning. Uh, very shortly after the fall of the Taliban, I went out to uh, uh, to reopen our embassy at the beginning of 2002, literally right after New Year's, uh, and to establish uh, working relations with the brand-new Afghan interim authority created at the Bonn Conference, December 2001, uh, headed by Hamid Karzai. So in a January interview with Foreign Policy, uh, since we're already talking about Taliban, so you mentioned that the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan would result in a Taliban takeover of uh, the country. So what policy do you think the U.S. Uh, should pursue instead? And I guess the, the greater question here is what's the mindset we should have uh, when deciding whether to withdraw troops or not from a country like um, Iraq, Syria? Afghanistan. First, uh, that's that's kind of uh, shorthand. It's not the withdrawal of U.S. troops per se. It is the withdrawal of U.S. interest. Uh, when you have troops on the ground in somebody else's country, uh, you are interested by definition, all the way up to especially the White House. Uh, so there would be a lot of ways to sustain a strategic commitment in Afghanistan. Uh, however, given the way this debate has played here. If you're out, you're all the way out. If the troops are gone, so are you. And that is why in the last year or so of the Obama administration, I joined with a number of others to try to persuade President Obama not to withdraw all forces from Afghanistan. That was one of his campaign pledges, uh, but to keep them there and carry that over to the next administration because it has come to typify for ourselves, uh, for Afghanistan, uh, and for our adversaries, including the Taliban, uh, to be the symbol of are we engaged or are we not? What about the debate about power power uh, vacuum? People always say that if you withdraw the troops, um, it would just be chaotic. Whereas there are also people who say if you let the troops remain there, you know, it's hard to convince people domestically. Um, well, these are, these are important points. Uh, if there were going to be a power vacuum in the wake of our withdrawal, um, um, 
that wouldn't be an unmitigated bad thing. Uh, there will be no vacuum. Uh, if we pull out, someone else is going to move up. This is exactly what we saw in Iraq. Uh, the president uh, said, uh, I am ending the war in Iraq. I am bringing our troops home. Well, he brought the troops home. He certainly didn't end the war in Iraq. We just saw the battle space taken over by others uh, in that particular instance by Islamic State in the West and by Iran and its proxies elsewhere in the country. Same in Afghanistan. If we decide we're done, the Taliban is going to be back. And uh, unlike Iraq, we've seen that movie before when the Taliban ran the country in the mid-90s. Uh, that took Afghanistan and the world nowhere good because that's where 9-11 came from. So for um, Americans who are tired of all of this, boy, I get it. Uh, I spent uh, seven years of my life post 9-11 between Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan. So I, I really get the bit about being tired. Uh, there are worse things. Uh, one of those worst things is giving up, saying you win, we lose. Uh, we're going home, have a nice day. Well, uh, again, we've seen the movie. Uh, the same guys want the country back that lost it in the first place. And we would have to be in overtime trying to figure out how we stop the next 9-11. So, so I guess what's your long-term vision for America's involvement in Afghanistan or the Middle East in general? So is deploying troops not, not the sustainable solution? Or do you think we really have to be there for a very long time until we establish absolute stability in the region before pulling out? Well, if your goal is absolute stability, <clears throat> you need to check your calendar going ahead and uh, mark the date. Uh, yeah. how, how does forever work for you? Because you are never going to get absolute stability in, in any of these rough places. Uh, and Afghanistan is, is certainly one of the roughest. So uh, first, you have to take a step back. Um, why is it you want to send troops in the first place? Uh, I distill this down to a pretty simple motto for myself. Uh, be careful what you get into. Uh, and the biggest thing you can ever get into in international affairs is uh, a military invasion of someone else's country with the aim of bringing down that country's regime. Um, and then what? Uh, we saw those then what's unspool endlessly in both Iraq and in Afghanistan. So be careful getting in. Think about the consequences because once you're in, you're in. The corollary of that is be careful what you get out of. That uh, disengagement can be as grave or graver an issue as the original decision to intervene. Uh, that's what we saw in Iraq. Uh, does it mean that we shouldn't have uh, intervened? For example, in the case of Iraq, you um, famously predicted the disintegration of Iraqi society in a confidential memo written before the Iraq war and ousting of Saddam Hussein. So. Um, should we not have uh, done it in many ways? You were just talking about going in. You have to have that conversation. Um, what is it that is so important to us that we see no alternative except the use of military force in that country by us to bring down a regime? Define your interests. Uh, once you've done that, then take a look at a longer term. Well, getting in isn't a problem for us. We're the greatest military on earth. People just get out of our way, and uh, then we've got it. We don't focus enough on what's next. Uh, what what can we expect? You know, once once the guns fall silent, as they did in literally days in Iraq, 
and, and, and also in Afghanistan. That's the part of the process where I just do not see us thinking through the consequences that are going to be out there for us. Are we thinking through those consequences enough today? Are there enough debate in policymaking realm and the academia today? Debate in this country comes is started by basically the, the administration. We're a presidential system. The president, through action or omission, uh, deliberately or inadvertently, is the one who sets the, uh, the tenor for that debate. Certainly, as we look at Afghanistan right now, that would be the case because the president has um, uh, instructed um, his team to basically negotiate a settlement in Afghanistan with the Taliban, um, not with the Afghan government, but with the Taliban. So that sends a pretty clear signal that uh, we're done there. Uh, we're basically just um, uh, negotiating the terms of our exit or, if you will, the terms of our surrender. That's what we did in Paris in the early 1970s uh, with the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese. The Paris talks were all about the terms of the American surrender. How could we dress it up? How could we uh, prolong it a bit? How could we get the story off the front pages? But, but the terms were clear to both sides. It was about the end of American participation in the Vietnam War. Today, what we're watching is exactly the same thing. It's about the end of American participation in Afghanistan. So this end of participation, it, had we not ended now, uh, would, be, would we be better off in, in the long run? If we stay longer, what, what would be sort of your proposal in that sense? Um, how should we address this issue? I, I think that where we are now in Afghanistan is, um, is adequate. It's not great, but it's not awful either. And we are helping the Afghans maintain a rough um, stability, if you will, where they are neither losing nor gaining considerable bits of ground. And we're doing that with a fraction of the troops that we had when I was ambassador to Afghanistan. When I was there, we had over 100,000. Today, we're you know, we fluctuate, but say 12 to 14,000, uh, plus another three to 4,000 from NATO. And that has been uh, good enough to keep the Taliban from holding a single provincial capital or a single major highway. Um, not great, but good enough, and it certainly costs a whole lot less in blood and in treasure than that 100,000-plus troops that were there during my watch. So, do, so do you think the problem of Taliban will ever be solved? Will they ever be gone? Will uh, there ever be a democracy, a Western democracy-like government um, and stability in Afghanistan? Because there are people who argue in comparative politics that certain countries like Middle East are just not suitable for uh, American democracy. We go in, we intervene, and then it just wouldn't work out. So how, what's the sort of mindset we should, should the U.S. be having when intervening in other countries' affairs, especially if, for example, we're seeing Venezuela today. Again, it's a very tough decision for the administration to make uh, how we intervene. Uh, well, it, it is a tough decision to make. We have a history, in, um, uh, mainly in Central America, um, and it was called Send in the Marines. Uh, which we did over and over over a number of decades. I sincerely hope um, that among the president's options for Venezuela is not sending in the Marines. I, I think the only people who would uh, 
have a stronger view on not sending in the Marines would be the Marines themselves. Uh, so, it, you know, military force should be your instrument of last resort. Uh, it should never be your first option. And I, I think with uh, leadership such as we have now that doesn't like to do complex, uh, particularly complex outside our borders, uh, the default position is, well, let's go attack them. Um, uh, they need to sit under a tree somewhere until that thought passes because it uh, it absolutely never takes you anywhere good. So, I mean, we're kind of seeing that in Syria today, right? I remember a couple of days ago, President Trump was showing the press this map. There was, he was like on the election night, there were a lot of red dots on the, on the map. Those were all ISIS strongholds, and now there are no red dots on the map. Our military action was, was very, very successful. We should have... Um, you know, a lot of military spending. We should really make our military advance in, in terms of um, eliminating the enemies in those areas. So uh, one could argue that military actions are very, very effective in terms of getting getting to where we want to be. If you can correctly define exactly where that point is that you want to be on. Look, military commanders would be the first to tell you um, uh, that Islamic State isn't gone. Um, they are still very much there. They are underground. And they know how to do this. Look, I was ambassador to Iraq uh, in 2007-2009. That was the time of the, um, the Iraqi troop surge, also a civilian surge. One of our clear goals was getting rid of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is the predecessor of Islamic State. Right. Uh, even with 180,000 troops, we couldn't quite do that. Uh, why? Uh, because there were elements in Iraqi society, communities, that did not consider al-Qaeda the worst thing they'd ever seen or the most uh, frightening thing they'd ever seen. They considered the uh, Shia-led government in Baghdad to be more dangerous to them than al-Qaeda. If you have that kind of dynamic, uh, it gets really hard to uh, eradicate completely an organization like al-Qaeda. So they went to ground, they bided their time, and then they were back. And that is exactly their game plan this time. Okay, let the Americans declare victory. Uh, we know how to do this. We know how to go to ground. We know how to hide out. They'll lose interest. They'll pull their forces. They'll go elsewhere. And then, baby, we're going to be back. And you can trust them on that. They've done it before. So uh, going back to what I was just saying, does it mean that there's just no cultural fit there to sort of for America to intervene? That it just... We were fighting a losing war from the very beginning. It, it, no, you only fight a losing war if you make a whole series of mistakes, and instead of rectifying the mistakes you've made, you continue to make new ones. Uh, we, we've made a lot of mistakes in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and I, you know, at times I was part of those, no doubt. But look, you, you'd asked earlier about um, American democracy taking root in, say, Afghanistan. Uh, well, look. Nobody successfully exports democracy. Uh, not us, not anybody else. It, it, it has to be built from the ground up in terms that reflect the realities, the fears, and the desires of the people who actually live there. Um, I, I'd give you an example, not from the Middle East, but from, uh, from East Asia in the period after World War II into the early 1950s where the major East Asian countries, many of them were run by autocrats, um, uh, authoritarian rulers. Uh, 
yet they were able to evolve their societies um, in, in places like South Korea, the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, where these are mature, fully functioning democracies. But they did it on their own terms. Um, sure, they looked to us for support, particularly South Korea, because that was a war that uh, didn't end. It's still on, just a truce, an armistice. Uh, but South Koreans, like Indonesians, like these others, figured it out in their own terms. Um, that's the only way it can work. You just can't bring in that uh, 18 boxes full of democracy, some assembly required. Uh, you, 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 you have to build it from the ground up. Uh, we see s some encouraging signs of that, but it's a long process. I think we can uh, reasonably hope that Afghanistan will emerge as a relatively open society, relatively secure, uh, without a major U.S. troop presence. But for that to happen, we, we've got to continue to buy the time, and this may be a, a years-long process, it almost certainly is, uh, at a cost we can afford with consequences of our not doing it, something we very much want to avoid, which is setting the stage again as it was set before 9-11. So the idea here, I guess, is that we need to take an even more long-term view. Is that saying, sure, we w would love those countries to have democracy, but we can't export it. They have to grow it on their own. And if we want them to grow on their own in, their, in a relatively stable environment, we at least need to have some troops uh, or presence and interest in the area. That, and that's why if from one president to the other, people just pull out randomly um, – it wouldn't help the regional stability, and it wouldn't help the people to figure it out themselves. Well, Tiger, I think you've just expressed the, the essence of the issue there. Uh, <clears throat> Americans are known for their lack of strategic patience. Um, we are an impatient people. That's how we built our own great country. Let's get on with it. Get her done. Uh, when it gets a little rough out there in the rest of the world, uh, we tend to think, oh, man, this is harder and more costly than I wanted. I'm tired of it. Let's move on to something else. That's what our allies over the years have come to fear more than anything else, and it's what our adversaries count on. In, in the case of Afghanistan and the Taliban, there's been a quasi-joke out there for years attributed to the uh, Taliban that you Americans, uh, you've got the watches. We, we Talibanis we've got the time. Right. And the process that we're seeing unfold now in negotiations uh, in Qatar with the Taliban, without the uh, Afghan government, certainly vindicate their position. Just uh, hang in there, hang tough, stay with it. They'll get tired and they'll go home. That is uh, not applicable just to Afghanistan. It is applicable to a lot of places in the world, again, where our allies have learned to to fear our impatience and our enemies to count on it. Is that one of the biggest weaknesses of American foreign policy in the sense that uh, I, mean, I, I thought a lot of people would say that Americans play a good long game, you know, in terms of winning the Cold War or um, successfully democratizing a lot of other countries, uh, like maybe in Latin America. Uh, there were successful revolutions that, that the U.S. facilitated. So um, it, it's, it's like, how would you comment on, on, on it in terms of how successful the U.S. actually is and whether the U.S. is actually good at the long, long game? 
Well, again, I, I'd like to take you away from the notion that the U.S. can create democracies somewhere else. We, <clears throat> we absolutely cannot. It's not because we're not smart enough. Um, it's not because we're not good enough. Uh, it's because almost by definition, uh, democracy can't be a foreign import. You've got to come, with it, come up with it on your own. And certainly we learned that in our country. I mean a whole – a very homogenous group, um, uh, homogenous uh, meaning um, white male land-owning, slave-owning, um, you know, no women, no one of different uh, ethnic or racial origins, just a gang of white guys. Well, we couldn't get it right um, in that long period, 1776, Declaration of Independence, 1789, the Constitution emerges. 13 years, we wandered in the wilderness of a confederation versus a federation. Um, and in, even when we did get it down, we, we kicked the really hard issues on down the road, like uh, slavery. Uh, so that, uh, you know, 70-odd years later, the country blows up in the Civil War that almost ended the American dream. That's how democracy works. It's messy. It's hard. It's dangerous. You can drive you right over the cliff, and you got to do it yourself uh, in your own way. I, I did talk about the, what I consider the democratic successes of East Asia. Well, you look at every one of those countries that, that, that made that crossing. They did it on their own. I mean, now, what we can do, uh, uh, we can provide kind of a macro stability so politicians can do political things and, say, not run militias. Uh, but the essence of the lift has to come from them. On, on the democracy thing. Uh, overall, other forms of engagement, uh, sure, we've had some, some impressive uh, successes, I would say. Uh, in almost every case, they've come because the people we were dealing with knew we were going to be around, that we were going to play the long game. Uh, again, uh, how long have American troops been in South Korea, in Japan, in Germany? Uh, uh, not a political issue for anyone, uh, but they have been key, I think, to regional and global uh, stability and to give political leaders in those countries, again, the, the space and the time they need to move forward on their own. That totally makes sense. Uh, on a more pessimistic note, uh, in describing the current political situation in the Middle East, you have ominously compared it to the turbulent political situation uh, in 1914 Europe, so kind of alluding to World War I, describing the current events. That would be a quite pessimistic view on the future, so I, I was wondering why you made that illustration and, and whether you really believe that the current political situation in the Middle East is that dangerous to, to blow up to the scale of a world war. Well, I, I worry about the state of the world, not just the Middle East. Right. Uh, look, um, you go back to the end of World War II, uh, the United States conceived of the post-war international order. Um, we designed it, and then we led it. We led it for decades. What did that order consist of? The United Nations. The United Nations emerged from the San Francisco Conference, our initiative. Uh, the post-war international financial order, the move off of the gold standard to basically the global U.S. dollar standard, that was hammered out in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. Um, NATO. So we designed that post-war order, and then we led it. We didn't dominate it. We didn't turn it into um, 
an instrument of unchecked American power. Uh, we, we led an international society, first in confrontation with the Soviet Union, subsequently to try more broadly to make the world a less violent place. And by and large, it worked. Because if, again, you go back to World War I, uh, after all the carnage, you got a European-designed peace. We weren't part of it. Um, uh, what did that European-designed peace bring? A two-decade truce between two halves of one unimaginably horrible world war. That's all it was, 1919, 1939. 1939, game's on again. So uh, I'm not in any way saying that history is going to completely recreate itself, but it should give us all pause. That uh, U.S.-led international order that we are so ready to back out of right now, um, it prevented global conflict for over seven decades. World War I, two decades. So before we toss this baby out, uh, we had better check again to see um, uh, that if we go through with this, if we no longer lead in the world, what happens? Who will? It, is there actually a sense or a consensus among the foreign service community that the U.S. is actually kind of retreating itself from the global order? Because I've also heard the opinion of saying President Trump or the administration could make all sorts of comments they, they want, but it's truly the, the, the ambassadors of the, the career diplomats uh, in the State Department who make those foreign policy decisions, and those are technocrats who aren't really affected by partisan politics, and uh, President Trump can say whatever he wants, and they'll um, remain to be there. Wow. Well, look, let me see if I can back you away from that one. <laughs> if that's the way America worked, we would be in huge trouble. Um, it's not the way America works. Uh, if you look at, say, the American military, um, uh, America's generals um, don't decide which wars they're going to fight and which wars right, they won't obviously. fight. Uh, well, it's it's the same with your diplomatic corps. Um, uh, we don't decide what treaties we want. Uh, we don't determine what alliances work for us and what don't. Uh, nobody elected us, just like nobody elects the American military. Uh, we are executive branch folks. We follow the directions and the orders of those the people that uh, the people did elect. But, but you're unbiased. You're independent. You give the unbiased advice to the to the president, right? Uh, correct. Unbiased advice. Uh, we don't then order certain policy initiatives and undercut others. You know, the, I, I was not a big fan of the decision to invade Iraq in 2003. Uh, but boy, once that decision was made, uh, we're all in. Uh, I was all in. So, you know, within weeks after the, uh, uh, the war started in March 2003, I was in Iraq to do my level best to try to put together some governing structures uh, that we could um, then pass off some responsibilities to because I, I had the experience in the area, I had the language. Uh, so of course I was going to go out and do the best I possibly could to make a decision I thought was frankly a terrible one, but to make it work. Uh, we're a professional service. Uh, uh, we certainly provide advice that advice is sometimes taken, sometimes not. But once a decision is made, conversation is over. You go forward and you do everything you can to implement a policy that the president has made a determination on. So 
what's the sense of in in the Foreign Service Committee about this administration, about where American foreign policy is currently headed? Well, first, um, uh, there is a great sense of relief in the State Department, both Foreign Service and Civil Service, that Rex Tillerson is no longer Secretary of State. Really? Uh, uh, he did more damage to the State Department and the Foreign Service as institutions than we have ever experienced before. In what way is that? Uh, all set to implement a one-third, a 33 percent budget cut for the State Department. Uh, that would have gutted our uh, entire personnel structure. Uh, it did damage anyway. Fortunately, he got himself fired before that damage became catastrophic. Look, any institution of national security, be it military or civilian, it runs on its people. Uh, you got to have the right people uh, with the right skill set um, and in the right numbers. Uh, if you don't, if you have a weak army or a weak foreign service, boy, are you going to pay for it down the road. So Secretary Pompeo uh, at least has reversed that process. Uh, uh, I think foreign affairs, national security professionals kind of worry about how that process works broadly. Uh, we, we haven't been in a situation in which uh, national security policy is made by presidential tweet before. Um, I am reminded that when President Obama was first elected, he had wanted to keep his BlackBerry. I mean, that was a long time ago. They had Blackberries. Uh, and his staff successfully wrested it from his hand. Um, so he couldn't make policy uh, uh, via his mobile device. Uh, so this is a new era. I think with Secretary Pompeo, you've got somebody who kind of knows how the world works. Uh, and uh, I would hope is able to give cogent advice to a president who very much trusts him. I mean, other administrations have also ha had scandals and, and crises, right? Why, why does the public and there's sort of this sense in the professional community, in this civil and foreign service community as well, that this administration isn't doing so well? Is it just the tweets or is it all kinds of deeper implications in the ideology we're, we're experiencing right now? Well, look, as I said earlier, um, if you're talking about our national security infrastructure, what is it? It's largely people. And in the State Department, it's almost all people. Um, but we've got a badly understaffed State Department right now. Um, uh, for example, there are six assistant secretary of state positions that cover the world, uh, Near East, Africa, Latin America, so forth. Only two of those six positions are filled by confirmed individuals. And this is almost two and a half years into an administration. Uh, you, can't, you can't run foreign policy if you don't have people to run it for you. Um, and, and we see this across the board. Our, our critical embassies, places like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, they have been without ambassadors since the beginning of the Trump administration. Uh, and when you look at what each of those countries is involved in right now, you've you got to have your best women and men on the ground as ambassadors in the field working with highly qualified, able assistant secretaries back home. We don't have either right now. And uh, I would hate to see the, uh, the excellence of the Foreign Service defined in the negative. If you don't know who we are and what we do, well, you're getting a good lesson in what happens when we're not there and we're not working the issues. 
because that's what we have right now. Before we finish the interview, I want to go a little bit more about your personal experience because you grew up in an Air Force family. You went to school in the United States, Morocco, Canada, and Turkey. Uh, how did that sort of shape your view of America and its place in the world, and how did it influence your thinking today? Um, well, it was a great way to, blow, uh, to grow up. Um, it certainly, by the time my college years were in progress, uh, I knew, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I know where I wanted to do it, uh, which was in the international arena. Uh, I had that advantage. I had traveled with my parents. I spent a college year abroad on my own. Uh, all of that let me understand to some degree that there's a big world out there and what happens in it is important, important for all of us, important for Americans. So uh, again, before I graduated college, I was um, absolutely certain that I wanted to be in that arena. Uh, the Foreign Service was one of many options. I also had applied to the uh, Peace Corps. I had uh, put in grad school uh, applications overseas. I was talking to Marine Corps recruiters. You know, one way or the other, I was going to get out in the world. Um, and uh, the Foreign Service came through. And I certainly would urge uh, students on this great campus, uh, if you're not thinking internationally, uh, this is a great time to do it. Because what happens in the world affects us, and what we do affects the world. That isn't going to change. Uh, so I, I, would, uh, I would hope students here will take a good, long, hard look at institutions like the Foreign Service and see if you want a chance to um, uh, live dangerously and make a difference. Uh, um, from, 18, uh, from 1981 to 84, you served as political attache in Beirut, Lebanon. So many people must have already asked you about this experience and because you, you survived the bombing attack on the embassy in 1983. Uh, and you talked about this experience in previous interviews and speeches, but I still really like to hear from you in person how that experience sh shaped your view on the world um, and the way you look at, I mean, not just, um, I, I guess, attacks or, or terrorism or uh, violent experiences, but just um, American diplom diplomacy and its engagement with the world in general. Well, that uh, April 18, 1983, one of those things you uh, you never erase from your memory tapes, uh, the definition of the ultimately bad day. Um, uh, what did it do for me, to me? Uh, it's played out at multiple levels, I'm sure, like, like all of us. But one um, lasting effect, I think, was, again, this, uh, this sense that um, uh, obviously bad things can happen out there. Uh, be ready for it. Uh, but also that there's no guarantee that the bad things that happen out there are going to stay out there. It's not Las Vegas. Um, it can be the, uh, the training ground uh, for bad things happening at home, as we, as we saw in 9-11. So uh, particularly after the uh, Beirut experience, I, I came to see the Foreign Service, the Foreign Service that I was uh, 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 so much a part of as uh, kind of your forward deployed forces. Um, uh, you know, we're the ones who will be out there. We're the ones who have the, you know, again, the languages, the training, the background to be able to say back to Washington, there's something going on out here that really isn't good, and here's why. Um, your ultimate early warning system, if you will, uh, diplomatically. And 
that's still a fundamental role for ambassadors and their teams to spot trends in a country that could affect the long-term stability of that country, stability of the region, and our own vital interests. Uh, also, it's a lot cheaper to deal with problems up front when they are political problems uh, than to let them get out of hand and turn into a military problem. So in that sense, uh, we are an economy of force operation in the Foreign Service. So uh, to me, it, it never was really in question. Go to hard places, do hard things, take some risks, accept some losses, register some victories, and feel that you've done something really meaningful with your life. Do you think American foreign policy, I mean, to phrase the question another way, how would you rate the, the, the impact of American foreign policy on the world in the past couple of decades? Because, I mean, we've seen, for example, President Carter focused a lot on human rights. Uh, Reagan, Bush were all about Cold War. Uh, President Clinton had the mission of democratic enlargement, you know, and, and then we had the war against terrorism. And you were just saying how you have some losses, you have some wins, you make an impact on the world. Have we made any progress as, as, a, as a whole, as a humanity? Um, uh, again, taking the big picture, I, definitely I think we, we have a lot to look back on of um, real accomplishment. Uh, as I was saying earlier, uh, the world, for all of its turbulence, unpredictability, and turmoil, now that we are no longer in a binary Cold War situation, is a fundamentally more peaceful and stable place than it has been. Uh, and again, it was American engagement in that world that produced a far better peace in 1945 uh, than the European negotiators managed in Versailles in 1919. Uh, uh, we're a presidential system, so the president obviously uh, accounts for a huge amount of success or failure internationally, but a president has to be staffed. Uh, you you got to have those women and men out there in the field saying, go this way, don't go that way, here's why, uh, to, to tee up the policy options and the consequences for, um, for these different options. Presidents don't have time to do that, and in many cases, they don't have the background to do it. Uh, that's why you have a foreign service, to, to make those uh, judgments that aren't just uh, off the top of your head on a uh, cable news channel, uh, that, that you've really thought through and that you have the intellectual equipment to think through and come out with options that make sense. So uh, a far better ride for the world post-World War II than it was post-World War I. We had a tremendous amount to do, the, do with that over the years and decades. And I think we should think twice and three times before we decide that was then, this is now, we're going home. The world can conduct itself as it wishes on its own. I mean, that's what the world did in the first half of the 20th century, and it wasn't pretty. Um, I think we need to reevaluate re again uh, where the best use of our resources are. You can get a lot for a little in international diplomacy. If you don't choose that route, um, you may get a lot of what you didn't really want at a much higher expense if you have only the military to resort to. You met your wife in Baghdad in 1979, uh, who was also in foreign service, and you first, first served together in Beirut during 
the Lebanese Civil War in 1981. Uh, you mentioned before together that you uh, you chose the, the Foreign Service over family. How has that sacrifice been? Um, would you have done anything differently in hindsight? I'm very curious about this because I guess a lot of students he here are, are definitely wondering, is it impossible to have both family and career successes, especially when both of you are very dedicated to your work? It's a great question and maybe the question for um, life. Some, <laughs> someone getting started on life in the real world. Uh, first, you, you need to know who you are. Uh, what are your core values? Um, Uh, what are your most cherished uh, hopes and desires? Um, the, the world is not family-friendly, let me put it that way, uh, and it's become less so over the years. Uh, we have far more unaccompanied assignments in the Foreign Service now than we did when I first entered, uh, when the Foreign Service was seen as fundamentally a family-friendly endeavor. You, uh, you'd go to important postings in major cities uh, where there would be world-class international schools for your kids. Uh, you'd be exposed to uh, uh, the language and the culture of, of foreign lands at a level you would never get in the States. Um, well, that world has changed. Uh, to, to go into the Foreign Service now, and when you go in, you have to make a commitment to worldwide availability. You can't say, I'll do Brussels but not Baghdad. Um, you've got to be ready for that. And uh, that means, again, asking yourself some really tough questions. If, um, if a family and kids in a stable environment is at the top, absolute top of your list, you know, I really wouldn't recommend the Foreign Service, frankly. Um, uh, it's, it's a very hard profession. Uh, it asks a lot of you, um, and sometimes you've got to put your life on the line for it. I, I tell folks that um, it's important to bear in mind that we have lost considerably more ambassadors killed in the line of duty at post since World War II, then we have lost uh, military flag officers. Military flag officers outnumber ambassadors, probably 40 to 1. Yet we've had more of more ambassadors killed than they have lost uh, flag officers. So uh, it's not only hard, it can be very dangerous. It's especially where you were. That, that was especially dangerous. Had you ever worried? I mean, obviously, you wouldn't. But you don't wake up every day thinking... Uh, about worrying your, your, your life and safety, right? I... No. Uh, and again, look, <laughs> when you're out there, you're, you're, you're so incredibly busy uh, that you don't really have time to think, uh, about, that. think about that kind of stuff. You just do it. But, but here's the thing. People were all wired differently. Um, in my on-the-job training and um, crisis post, I, I discovered I was kind of good at it. And even worse, that I kind of liked it. I liked the challenge. I mean, everything else drifts away. And you're just looking at one or two really, really big things. Uh, time slows down. Um, you're, you're everything except nervous, uncertain, or scared. You know, you're, you're, you're focused, you're sharp, uh, and you're making some very tough calls. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's not you. Uh, it isn't a qualitative or moral judgment. It's just the way we're wired. But I think everybody owes themselves the um, opportunity to find out awesome. uh, just how they're wired. Awesome. L just the last question. So the name of our show is po uh, Policy Punchline. So I had to ask you at the end of our show, what do you think the, the punchline here is 
for foreign policy, uh, diplomacy, foreign service, life? Um, I'll go with life. <laughs> it's real simple. Go to hard places, do hard things. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ambassador Cocker. This has been such an honor and pleasure to talk with you about uh, the Middle East and life. Um, yeah. Thank you, Tiger. It was a pleasure. Uh, and thank you for listening today uh, at Policy Punchline. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play, and visit us on policypunchline.com. Thank you for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.